It's all hiked up. Yes. You clean your chair. We're good to go. You've even got a vape. Don't tell anybody. Oh, shit, dude. Relapse. You can tell a story of relapse. I did miss the, uh, the smell of nicotine and cherry flavor or whatever the fuck that is in here. Holy crap. Guys, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. Boy, am I excited to be <laughs> back on the air. So we had a we had a little snafu today. Snafu. Um, we should probably tell um, that stands for something. Snafu. Aaron, that we're on schedule. Um, yeah, I just um, you know I was preparing for the show last night, mm. and I know and you had your booster, so you weren't feeling great. <laughs> well, I was lying around delirious, uh, seeing things that weren't there. So, right. So that's you know <laughs> sounds like fun. That's what we call a free lab. I, I call that the eighties. Right. <laughs> and uh, I'm preparing for the show. I'm, I, you know, over preparing probably. I mean, I couldn't even get a staple through this outline. There's no way we're getting through all of this. But um, good, great. I was over preparing, and then last night we're getting ready to put my little Maxie to bed, and he's, and then she, my wife says, "All right, so we'll meet at 10:30 tomorrow at the school, <laughs> right?" And I was like, uh. No, um, I've got a lot going on, you know, I've got, we're doing the show, I have to open my shop, the, you know, the work, it works. And uh, long story short, I panicked and I had a little moment where I had to just like walk away from the computer because I was furiously typing, making the, uh, the outline. And once I realized I had a serious scheduling problem because we've got Aaron's going to be waiting for us to call it. You know, well, what was the thing you were supposed to do this morning that you had forgotten about? There is a holiday concert at the elementary school for my ah, second grader, okay. and um, you cannot miss that, especially no. because I just saw my son's concert and your son's concert is the sixth the grade. Night. Yeah, that was good, and um, I mean it was short, <laughs> and so we had a concert. But um, let's get into that. You, after um, we, uh, <laughs> if your wife we, uh, is anything like mine, yeah. um, when she reminds you of something that you've forgotten. And then you bring up the, you had to go do the podcast. Mm -hmm. The look yep. that you get yep. is not a look of understanding and empathy. <laughs> but I was proud of myself because I didn't, I really was careful not to make my son feel like I was no, annoyed course, by him. And you have to be careful the way you speak in front of these kids. Sometimes. You should get a uh, day planner, they call that. Yeah. You write, you, remember those? You write, the you file write down facts. what's going on. You get a file of facts. Yeah. And, uh, and in any case, um, so we went to the concert. I'll tell you about it. I had some problems with the way it was run. And oh my. my music teacher, you know, passed, is creeping in on me. And um, You should call uh, and, uh, a meeting I've of got, the music department. <laughs> I said, I am a music school education <laughs> dropout, and I have some opinions. Uh, so listen to me. And with that, and we're back. Welcome to Recovery in the Middle Ages, the podcast about two middle-aged suburban dads in their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. I'm Nat X. Uh, and I'm Mike, what's left of him. And boy, do we have a show for you today on RMA. Nat and Mike return triumphant from our respective weekend family excursions mm. and Get Smart with Erin Moore returns for a Recovery in the News special edition as we discuss Maya Zalovitz's new article, 
Opioids feel like love. That's why they're deadly in tough times. In the New York Times, all this and more today on a very special edition of RMA. Hi, guys. How How was your week? How was it? I was asking the audience, did, did not, not you. Are, hello? I know pretty, I pretty much know how your week was. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're hearing from a lot of the monsters on the private group, and so we know how they're doing. Yeah. But you know what the interesting right. thing is, uh, or maybe it's not so interesting, you know, there's a, there's a core group in our group, in our Facebook group of maybe, you know, 10 or 15 people who are mm-hmm. all the time participating, but there's also like thousands of other people that listen to this podcast that have no idea what's going on in the Facebook group. I'm a little, getting a little worried that the people in the Facebook group are getting bored because we talk about stuff in the Facebook group and then we talk about it on the show. Right, but they're in the minority. I mean, there's a lot of listeners who do not come onto the private group. Right. Um, well, we don't want to lose them or lose their attention. Yeah. I think, um, I don't know, I think I would like to hear, like when I'm on other recovery podcast groups, mm. I think it would be cool. I always think it's cool when they... Um, you know, call out something that's happening on the group. Right. Speaking of your wife. And uh, speaking of her. Oh, so, and um, <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's never ending. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's been great talking to everybody. And it gives us ideas, you know, um, this is show number 65. So we're at a point where we're trying to figure out what the next big thing is going to be for us. Or the next episode and is it, going to be. But what is the next episode? The next it's episode kind of is very exciting. We have a, a, a guest next week, and it's uh, Paul Churchill. You right. Know, folks, you may know him from uh, Recovery Elevator, both yeah. the podcast and the uh, the juggernaut uh, empire of recovery that Paul, uh, he, Paul is involved in. It is a juggernaut, and it's something to behold what he has built with that podcast. And I... Uh, I listen. In fact, that I envy should, his monetization skills. He's the reason we met uh, in this yes, way. That's right. So uh, be, you have to remember to bring I, that the, up with them. Recovery Elevator was extremely instrumental in my early days of recovery. I think that was the first recovery podcast I ever listened to. Yeah, yeah, it's you very know, accessible. I, think I stumbled upon it, and I was like, "This guy's great." And then he started talking about ayahuasca, and I was like, "Well, this is a recovery <laughs> yeah. program I can get behind." Well, um, he's he's very evolved, and he's. Very I don't. I don't educated. want to pigeonhole him into the plant medicine thing because that's not what he's all about. I mean, he's, yeah, he's very inclusive, yeah. and it's. Um, Anyway, it'll be really exciting. We we did a couple episodes on his book, Alcohol is Shit. I hope he didn't listen to it. Yeah, I'm sure he didn't. <laughs> and um, so it's going to be exciting. We're excited for that. But what I'd like to say is welcome to all the monsters listening stateside, around the world, down the street, across the table, and right next door. Across the table. Welcome all. That means you. Settle in, buckle up, and get ready for excitement, comedy, tragedy, intrigue, mystery, and so much more. <laughs> Where can they find us, Mike? Uh... I'm not saying that, but you can uh, use your use your keyboard and log on to middleagesrecovery.com where you can listen to past shows, buy great merchandise through the web store. The web store? Is that a word? Is this 1995? It- <laughs> Go to the web store and purchase some merchandise. Yes. Um, and tell us your story by filling out the online story form. Post selected. it on a news group. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, selected entries uh, will be read on the show. It's a threat and a promise. So shine up your best stories and, and let her rip. Um, you know what we should have put on here also what? the hotline because we're still a, you know is it okay. I did toward the end I'm, I'm I gotta sorry. rewrite this no it's fine I have I mean, a whole thing here anyway call the, call the RMA hotline at 516-888-629 oh was that when I didn't finish <laughs> writing the whole number I think it's um, right, I'll find it because you know we're having a um, we're having a Christmas special 
yes. in two weeks. It's actually going to come out on Christmas Eve, although I, I doubt we'll be recording it on Christmas Eve if our wives have anything to say about yeah, it. Yeah, that would be pretty impossible. Um, and I'm having like 30 people at my house on Christmas Eve, which is stressing me out to no end because no one will tell me what we're making or ordering or having. Wait. I know what I mean, Aaron. I didn't get invited to Christmas Eve. No, you can come if you want. More the merrier. So the number is 516-888-6297. I promise to fix that on the next outline. Yeah, so you guys call and leave us a, a holiday message. Um, tell us if you're, uh, how your recovery is going, what your recovery is, because we have people uh, from all different sort of programs and approaches that meet here at RMA. I'd What's love that to number? hear about it. What's that number again? 516. You have it on the phone right there. It's 516-888-6297. And right. there's a phone message from Mike, and uh, you can uh, leave Sweet. us a message. Wait, there's more. Call now, and um, no, nothing <laughs> get a free set happen. of Ginsu knives. No, nothing is free, but that reminds me. Um, speaking of nothing being free, we yeah. also have T-shirts and stickers right. for your holiday shopping. So if you've done any, uh, if you need to do any last-minute holiday shopping. Um, Go to our website, buy a t-shirt, buy a sticker. We have several different designs yes. uh, to appeal to your artistic sensibilities. We're low on sizes on the original shirt, but we still, I think, have double X, small and medium. Actually, we, no small. We just have medium. Yeah. We figured everybody was middle-aged and large. <laughs> so <laughs> That um, was the calculus anyways. Yeah, so anyway, uh, go, to the, um, go to the iTunes thing and write us a review. Great ones will be read on the air. Uh, Bad ones too, probably if they're funny. We'll take but don't leave us get. a bad one. Please. You'll screw us. Um, the best, uh, yeah. Apple Podcast app. Give us five stars. Help others find RMA through search. I don't know what that means. Every review helps. The discussion continues 24-7-365 on our private Facebook group, found conveniently through our public-facing Facebook page. We screen new members to keep out the riffraff, and the discussion is unsearchable, so we can all feel comfortable, safe, and happy. Yeah. Members of our private group have recovery meetings, just yeah. book clubs, not yet, but recovery meetings, usually Sundays at 11.30 a.m. Eastern. Um, I promise to rewrite this. And let you participate in our Amongst <laughs> Speak segment and contribute. Yeah. <laughs> it's all good. Anyway, um, yes. and finally, the best way uh, to spread the love and spread our show around. How is, what do we do? We share it with a friend. That's right. And if you get something out of it, share the love. Help grow the RMA movement. Tell another addict or alcoholic or someone with alcohol use disorder that there is a place to go to find like-minded, happy people holding hands. There's a place for us. Um, and we got a review. We do have a review. This, week. Um, this one is by uh, Respect is the subject, and the person is Blueberry503. Do you think they put uh, the emoji of the gun, the, the bicep, to allude to your biceps that you used to have when you would go to the gym <laughs> used to have yeah used to um could be but what they say they give five stars and say just want to say great work on the podcast i love how honest you guys keep it keep up the great work right yeah yeah we'll keep trying pride myself you on keep honesty. listening and we'll keep making them yeah that's the deal but we didn't have a story so what i no. do usually is we do a special segment that we call Monsters speak, 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 speak. And this is when, you know, we have these great discussions with the, the Monsters on a private group. And I will occasionally post something. I get you know, a random thought about recovery in my head or I pick one of our recovery chips out of the bag. Mm. Um, the one that I picked out of the bag this week didn't get that many responses, so I sort of left it. But um, what I posted this time and got some good responses was 
keeping your addiction a secret when trying to get sober is like trying to paint with your feet. What the fuck does that mean? I don't know. But how can we... <laughs> How can we tell our wives, husbands, partners, or family what's really going on if you're afraid they will leave you? Keeping your problems secret may seem like it is life or death, but living a double life is one of the behaviors we are trying to get away from in recovery, for me. Or are we? Um, what are your thoughts on it, I said? Are you open with your loved ones about your struggles? If not, uh, how are you able to be fully engaged and feel safe trying to get sober? If you came out to your loved ones, what was the result compared to what you thought would happen thanks nat x it's like nine questions right but so let's first see. let me say this <laughs> if you have no arms chances are you can paint fine with your feet although you've learned difficult. to do it since you were a kid right so that would be like painting with your arm stumps right right would be appropriate for that situation I think. yeah you can drive with your feet i've seen that uh have you well on a tv show when they showed someone you know surviving with yeah. their disability. I mean, I, I don't mean to, you know, make fun of people with disabilities. That's not what this is Sounds about. Sounds like that's exactly what you're doing. It's like. just no. uh, the paint with your feet thing. I, I, I was like, okay, I guess that's... <laughs> so I selected some responses. <laughs> Sorry, I'm I selected still, some responses. I still have a fever. Um, okay. Anna Q says, great question. I was scared when I told them, but I was met with understanding and sympathy. Although because they don't, can't understand, they are normies. They are almost too understanding when I slip. Telling them hasn't provided much accountability. Maybe I should have been more honest, but I don't want to panic them either. Mm. That is a great point. Yeah. You got to draw, really, really kind of walk the slack line between too much information. Like, do they really need to know that you stayed up for five days smoking right. crack in a little room with uh, with some guys that you just met on the street? Or yeah, especially if they don't understand right. addiction. Yeah. You know, I, I had that. But at what point are you like, it'll... It means my life if I don't come out with this. Right. You know what I mean? But I guess you just have to be, because, you know, and it's and it's interesting because we listen to, I don't know about you, but I listen to It's All Bad, that other podcast. Yeah. Yeah, I'm and listening and talk about oversharing. I mean, I mean, I love those guys and I think their stories are really off the wall, but I mean, I could not, I don't know if I could sit there and talk and tell that no. stuff to people like. Because between you and me, we've got a hundred stories like that that yeah. I probably never yeah. want to because this isn't that kind of show. Right. But, but I mean, you know, you really, because if you give, if you give them too much, then they, they will freak out. It leaves nothing to the imagination. Right. Like I have not told my wife the things I used to do in the, you know, before we met in the eighties mm. and stuff. There's no way. What's the point? Um, anyway, so next, what is, what does another monster have to say? So Susan DP, uh, she says, stop laughing. I've been completely open and honest about my recovery with my family. My children are very supportive and keep me in check. On the other hand, my husband thinks it's easy to change and doesn't understand my struggles. Mm. That's, you know, this is something a lot of us, if not most of us will deal with when we get into recovery, because if the other person hasn't been through it or isn't educated on it. That's why when I first got into these recovery programs, you know, I was doing outpatient facilities or inpatient, they made a big point to include your family. Right. In fact, more than the first time they said it, part of, you know, like that it was required that I drag my 70 something year old parents into a group meeting and I hadn't lived with in 20 years. And I, I just, I felt like that was over the top. But I understand the importance of bringing in people who are, you know, like your wife or your partner uh, and that sort of thing. But I, having a having a partner that thinks it's easy to change yeah. and doesn't understand the struggles, that is really interesting because, you know, there are a lot of people out there who are just like, well, just stop then, you know. Yeah. Just don't do it anymore. Put the plug in the jug. You know? 
Um, so that's difficult. And so it, but they don't really get it. It sort of falls on your shoulders then to educate them. And that's another stress. Well, because this is the whole thing about the addict is the only one that wants a reward for doing the most basic thing of right. not putting something into their body. You know? Right. And if that's how you see it, then, you know, you'd be uh, justified in thinking that. But uh, that's not what uh, studies show. The, the, the point is people have such a wide diversity of experiences in recovery. Some right. people, I think, find it easy to put down a substance, but maybe hard to stay stopped. I mean, and, and that's true of know. anything. I was just listening to an It's All Bad episode, haha, and uh, there was a woman on, and she talked about adoption, uh, her adoption as it relates to her understanding her addiction. And, of course, Mike on their show is also adopted. Mm. Mike and on it, this show is too. You're right. But uh, it was interesting because she was saying, you know, how much she's involved in support communities for that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and she says, oh, you're adopted, so am I. And it started off like we have so much in common, but then she realized, well, he was adopted when he was seven weeks old. She was in foster homes. Oh, very different situation. And, you know, and so she's got a different set of issues because of, you know, she said she had to perform for the foster parents. She felt like she was always yeah. like... So even with something like that, there it's not like the same for everybody. Like everybody... Is coming from someplace different. Adoption is an issue that I think merits its own show, probably because there's a lot, there's a lot of adoptees, myself included, you know, who have a lot of problems with self identity and and how that plays into becoming more susceptible yeah. to addictive behavior is something that's been studied quite a bit. Yeah, and um, she would be a great guest too because she seemed very knowledgeable on the subject and was very involved in support yeah. groups for it and connecting it with her uh, addiction and like in her fifties she's like coming to this realization that. Mm it really had more effect on her than what she felt AA was telling her that it, it wasn't that, and right. that you were just born an addict type of thing. Mm-hmm. And she was like, well, mm, not so sure now, now that I'm understanding where this is coming from. Uh, I, can I just interrupt for a second? Yes, I just got a text message on my watch from Federal Express that says, um, my uh, package from wine.com was just delivered. Oh, <laughs> what'd you get? My assumption is that somebody from work has sent me a large amount of wine, which would be mm. unfortunate, but I have to get rid of it. Yeah. Well, would anyone like some? Anyone this want is wine? probably the wrong audience to ask. <laughs> oh. uh, so Maya AN says, um, I have been pretty open with those that need to know. My double life between work and home was the exhausting part. I'm, I'm glad I no longer have to lie about what I did on the weekend and pretending not to be hungover and worse. I can finally just be myself. Mm. Yeah. Just be yourself. Be yourself. Um. And of course, Grant, editor at large of the RMA Newsroom, also known as G Money Smooth. Um, <laughs> I haven't called him that in a while. We have not. So I'm getting back here. Because it's funny because if you look at him, you're like, G Money Smooth. Yeah. It's the first thing I think of. Well, not exactly, but you know. Well, the gold teeth and the right. yeah, that's four true. knuckle ring and all yeah, of that. Yeah, it's yeah. sort of G Money Smooth. The, the, the color matching clothes. Yeah. Um, he says this, one hits close, <clears throat> says, this one hits close to home for me. After years of secretive drinking, I decided to keep my recovery on the down low. No one questioned why I wasn't drinking because I had always pretended to be a very moderate drinker anyway. I came out to my wife and kids when I decided I needed an intensive outpatient program. Even then, I kept my meetings and other recovery stuff on the side and didn't share much. All of that changed after I had a career-altering relapse. After that, everything has been out in the open, and I've become more sharing, more open sharing with family, friends, and former colleagues. There are some positives that come with leaning into my identity as a person in recovery. Despite the stigma of addiction, people love a good comeback story. That's also true. Yeah, thank you, know, you Grant. But, um, but it took it took him a while before he 
Yeah. You know, I guess at some point, they, the circumstances forced his hand, right? Yeah. I mean, and when they're telling you, you have to, you're fired. Well, <laughs> maybe it's time, time to level with the family. Well, and, and that brings back the you theory know. of rock bottom. Right. Is that a rock bottom? And I don't know, but that was the same for me. I didn't, and then when I first came out, quote unquote, that I was, I had a problem with addiction, that was so hard. I couldn't even say the word heroin for mm. a little while. It was oh, it's Xanax. I remember lying right. about what I was addicted to, and the only <laughs> I'm thing, only addicted to right to benzos. Somehow that sounded better. You know <laughs> what I mean? Because I I didn't have that like oh, the doctor prescribed it to me. No, right. no doc, doctors had nothing to do with my addiction. It was all 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 me. And, and that's how the stigma kills people, right? Yeah, I, absolutely. Because because I wasn't honest about uh, it being an opioid that I was addicted to. I got the wrong kind of treatment initially, the wrong kind of detox, because until finally I had to whisper to the nurse, actually, it's um, heroin. She's like, what's that, honey? <laughs> heroin. Say it louder, you know? <laughs> finally, I got used to saying it, and once I was honest, imagine that when I was honest with what I was struggling with, I got the proper treatment, or at least started to, Right. you know? Um, Rob S., one of our uh, monsters from across the pond, says, quite a timely question for how my recovery is going. I have told my partner about the meetings and she is supportive of what I'm doing. This week I have told two friends and two work colleagues, one my manager, that I've decided to stop drinking permanently due to issues with it. The work colleagues know I am doing meetings. I have previously told my mom, that's a, a British that's word a British for thing. mom, yes. I was considering, <laughs> considering AA and she was quite supportive but did question if I needed it. Mm. Um, on the day I broke the news... I felt extremely anxious and out of sorts for the rest of the day. Not sure why. But as the week has gone on, I've felt much better that a few people know, and I seem to be thinking less about drinking. That's really, really That's great. interesting. It is. And um, Sometimes just letting yeah. it out there takes all that pressure off of you. Absolutely. You know? And I've been finding myself planting that seed earlier on in meeting people. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I've been doing with, with people I want to know just in case of a future. Hi, I'm Nat. I don't drink alcohol because I'm an addict. Right. <laughs> but like Hi, Nat. my, my tech tactic now is if I, I start sticking about something and then I'll throw in, yeah, and I haven't had a drink in four years and right. I didn't, and I just move on. So I put that in people's heads just so like, you know, it's in the future, it'll grow into a flowering plant of sobriety. Yeah. <laughs> um, what about, Hey, we've got a new monster. What? Named Julie S. And, um, I'm only exci super excited because I think she's like a professional piano player. Really? Yeah. If, if that's true, Julie, tell me. But I'm, I, I'm very impressed by that. Um, and what does she say? Do you want to read it? She says, um, this has been the biggest hurdle for me, telling the people closest to me what's going on. When you're the calm one, the supportive one, the peacemaker, the cook, the list goes on and on, to suddenly come out as the one who doesn't have it all together would shatter my kids, or I think it would. I know my husband loves me and he'd eventually be supportive, but I can't bear to see the disappointment in his face. My siblings tend to be very judgmental when it comes to stuff like this, and I don't want to subject myself to that either. The shame that comes with addiction is a huge weight, yet I know that's not the only way to move forward. I've not taken this step yet. Well, I mean, I don't think you necessarily need to take the step right away. Yeah. I think you can sort of nibble at it around the edges. You don't have to come out with it right away. Yeah. You know, you know, some people say, oh, rip the Band-Aid off. You know, sometimes that's traumatizing. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes there's another way. I, I, I disagree with the ripping of the Band-Aid yeah, sometimes. Me too. You know, incrementalism, you know, is, 
a perfectly legitimate strategy in a situation where you're not comfortable going full out? Um, uh, there was an author and, um, and a guy, I guess you could just call him an author, uh, David Wilcock, who is one of these paranormal guys. He talks about it. He's always speaking at conventions and he's, he's got a, you know, his views are on the crazier side of things, but it's very entertaining. (laughs) On the crazier side of the paranormal convention speakers? Yes. Mm. And, uh, I could get into it, but I, I enjoy the entertainment of it. And one time he described, because someone asked, like, how do you tell people that you like, because coming out of the closet to your friends about being a believer in UFOs type of thing. (laughs) And he says, listen, I have a 10% rule. I never give someone more than 10% of the whole story, you know, each time I'm educating them on what I, you know, the UFO thing or what I believe about aliens. And he said, like, you you give them 10% and Mm -hmm. let them, um, you know, think it over. And uh, and then the um, and then the next time. In, in other words, not yes, a fire. Gradual, hose. right, right. Um, let me ask you this, Ned. Uh, is it harder for you when you meet a new person to tell them that you've been a heroin addict or that you believe in UFOs? Um, it's on par, <laughs> but I've been more comfortable with uh, UFOs lately than I was with the heroin addict. Uh, but um, yeah. So anyway, do you remember last week? No. Oh, and thanks to everybody else that uh, that participated. We, you know, in the interest of time, we only have a few that we get to read. Um, but you know, Hope, Peter, Tony, Chris, and FRV, thanks for participating. If you want to see the rest of the Munsters' brilliant responses, join our discussion group. Search for Recovery in the Middle Ages on Facebook. You'll find our public-facing page, uh, or just send one of us a uh, DM, and we'll we'll let you in the group. So you remember last Friday? Yes, vaguely. When we were what did when we, we do? were we were doing the show. Oh yes, we yes. were cramming it all in into the last minute because you had to go to Connecticut and I had to go to Massachusetts, and mm. it was so crazy. It was nuts. And where did you go? So okay, each year I think I can't remember if last year we did it. That's it. that's another thing I've noticed. The last year I don't remember things from you know, the holidays and how it went. Because I'm conflating old. it with the previous, yeah. But, um, so there's something called the North Pole Express, which is a, an old-fashioned train in Connecticut that is really supposed to, you know, approximate the Polar Express uh, feel for the kids. Right. Uh, which is uh, um, a wow. movie and a book and about Christmas. And so we go up with our, our neighbor friends mm-hmm. um, who you've met and, you know, we have a tradition of going to this cute little town. It's called Essex, Connecticut. We stay in a hotel called the Griswold Inn that is built in 1776. It's like haunted and old and charming, you know? And uh, so we all put on our, um, our Christmas pajamas, matching Christmas pajamas, and you get on this train and then there's this, uh, somebody dressed up like an elf and it's all decked out like Christmas. And this elf is like, they have like some pretend scenery outside the train, mm-hmm. you know, and they'll Does say, oh. the train move? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's on, I guess it's a decommissioned track or something. Okay, all right. Yeah, so it. you're yeah. really going somewhere. That's but, pretty cool. But you're going nowhere. And then and while you're going, they, they sing, they play holiday games. This elf with a microphone and she's singing songs and they bring out, Christmas cookies and hot chocolate, and then Mr. and Mrs. Claus show up, and uh, the kids take pictures with them. Wow. And then what we do is we stay the night in this creepy old hotel, have dinner there, and uh, and usually we would stop in Mystic, 
Connecticut yes. the next day, which where is where there's an aquarium and it's yeah. right on the water. It's a really cool village too. Yeah. Um, that would be cool for us to do. I was thinking, I'm like, man, you and me? yeah, we should have brought the uh, <laughs> those guys. Uh, but uh, oh, you mean bring the kids? No, you and you know, and Aaron and like oh oh oh, you okay. know, it's, yeah. it's a really cool like little family friend trip type of thing. Yeah, it's yeah. very like low low pressure, you know. Only uh, four hours on I ninety five to get up there. Yeah, but so <laughs> twenty the, miles away. When we were coming back, my wife has always wanted to cut down our own Christmas tree, and I have always said that's absurd. Why would we do that? <laughs> yeah. Why would you even suggest such a thing? But this time, um, I just said, "Fine, let's do it. I'll try. It. Let's do it." And so we got a reservation. We went to this. It was like something family Jones Family Farms in Connecticut. If anyone out there is looking to chop down their own tree. And uh, it was quite an experience. Have you ever chopped down your own Christmas tree before? Once. It was... Uh, was it awful? Yes. And I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you why. It was pouring rain. It was somewhere out east on the island. Mm-hmm. Pouring rain. And the trees that they had to cut down at this Christmas tree farm that year were the really spiky ones that if you just... Even if you touch it, it's like a cactus almost. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we have. Those. Yeah, I got and one then, of And um, then, <laughs> so I'm out there in the pouring rain with a saw. The kids are really young. I'm sawing away at this freaking thing. I finally get it cut. Uh, we're soaking wet. I drag it back to the car. Uh, it's a hundred something dollars for the tree, uh, which back then- a hundred back then? Yes. Wow. I put We put it on the roof of the car. We get it home. We set it up and it's dead inside like I was at the time, but (laughs) yeah, completely dead inside. And we had to get another tree a couple weeks later. Maybe it was a middle-aged tree. So I, I exercised the demon of cutting my own Christmas tree down. Well, Uh, but from the pictures I saw, you guys had a very Norman Rockwell experience. Yeah. And that's what I'm always going for when we do these things. I'm like, I want to have the Norman Rockwell experience, but uh, it was fun. The kids had fun. You know, my 11-year-old is sort of, he's still very much in the spirit of Christmas, but he's not a believer, as they say. But um, it was really cool. You know, we marched up this hill, and you know, they gave us a saw <laughs> instead of an axe. Who cut the tree down? Uh, you me. or Christine? I did it. You. Okay. Yeah, it wasn't a very thick, I mean, I thought it would be much harder. Mm. Um, and of course, my formerly bulging muscles were still are still quite, um, you know. Well, there was a great to. picture of your wife carrying the tree. I, so I'm not sure how, why you made her do that. I was holding the bag. Well, you were taking the picture. I, I don't know who took that picture, come to think of it. Because I was holding the back of the tree. Oh, you were. You couldn't see you back there. So it just who, looked like Christine had the whole thing. Uh, I, I said I was bringing up the rear because there's another picture, if you, you check, where I'm holding the back oh, of the tree. Okay. So we were doing it together. All right. Okay. Um, I guess <laughs> Noah took the picture, but I, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, we had a lot of Christmas spirit and, um, you know, it was, it was cool. And, um, you know, we were just tired, but we got back and we got the tree up and it's gigantic compared to what we thought. Awesome. Um, so that's like... Uh, um, 24 hours you were gone just about, right? Like, well, even Friday and Saturday, we oh, came you, back Saturday night. So I closed oh, yeah, the shop yeah. for two days. Right. And I was like, you know what? My kids are always giving me shit about, I'm not there Saturdays. And so instead I took Sunday. So, <laughs> um, and of course, uh, Sunday, you know, I was back to church and, and I worked mm. and, uh, and so that was kind of that. And uh, you, where did you go? Well, um, I went on a college trip. Oh. I'm not going back to college, but no. Dimitri is, in theory, going to college. Right. We've applied to a bunch of them, and we figured we should go look at a few. So uh, last time, Aaron took him up to a couple, and uh, this time it was my turn to take him. And uh, that was interesting because 
He's 17. There's not a lot of chit chat that we typically do at home. He's mm-hmm. very sort of reserved, but, um, you know, five hours in a car up to Boston, we decided to stay in Boston because, you know, it's Boston. He likes the Boston's city because cool. he's into history. So we can walk the, you know, there's that red line that I actually, goes through the city yep. and it goes from historical place to historical place. Yep. So we got, we stayed near the North end, which is known for its Italian fare. We went out and got a nice dinner, Italian, red sauce, Italian, Napoli, Naples cuisine. I don't know what, Napoli cuisine. Ah, yes. Anyway. Uh, and then walked around and it was like 20 degrees and it was freezing, but, mm. um, it was good. We had a great conversation on the way up and on the way back. I mean, yeah. uh, I don't agree with him about anything, uh, <laughs> politically, right. but, um, and it's fine. Way. You know, it was a good conversation and he actually told me, I said, listen, and then this is something that, you know, I have a hard time relating to 17 year old. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. Know, I do. I, most of us do. But we're driving back and I said, listen, Dimitri, I said, we had a really good, I, I really enjoyed this trip. Uh, I mean, I don't agree with everything you say, but it was, you know, you have a great brain and it was really good talking to you. And he said, I had a good time too. And I was Aww. like, wow, that's amazing. Like, cause I never get that. That's from so him. cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's great. It's so valuable when they're in that teenager state, you know, I know, um, but I mean, visiting the colleges was interesting because yeah. we went at like nine in the morning and there's nobody up like for like nobody <laughs> any frat kids passed down on the sidewalk. Well, I was kind of looking for yeah. evidence of that culture up there. These are two small Catholic colleges in Massachusetts, you know, and, uh, you know, I don't know. Um, I, do kids even do that anymore? Do they go to college and just drink a lot? Like definitely. I have no idea. I think definitely. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's got to, right. I, I won't accept anything else. Yeah. <laughs> I right. think if it's not like that, I'll be, extremely disappointed yeah. oh that's so good and and um uh that must have been fun like just seeing co- what do even colleges look like is it, is it all technology everything some some of that you know. is there now and some of the other some of the colleges but um you know i i actually found the, the that they were really not that fa- fancy i mean one of them was like they put on a good show uh, you know, for for the people who are coming to look at it, and the and the other one was just reminded me of Fordham in like 1985. It's yeah. just kind of you know with computers, but it's cool. Well, I, I kind of wasted my my sleep away years at college, you know, just doing drugs. So <laughs> I kind of wish I could go back and do it again. Like, God, I would love you know. to, and and I sort of did get a chance to go back to college, but not in the, the yeah you know, that night school. I did that same. too. That doesn't it ain't count. the same. Yeah, um, I. <laughs> Used to fantasize about. I'm going back to college. Maybe I can get on the uh, into the dorms. Um, <laughs> yeah, you could get arrested for for just being in the dorms now. Oh my goodness! And um, let's see. Oh, we also speaking of concerts. Yes, we had a major symphonic. Actually, I don't know if it was symphonic. It was just a concert band. The sixth grade at the local middle school had our concert. My son playing the trumpet. Mike's son playing the saxophone, right? Yes. Which saxophone is it? The alto. Alto, yeah. alto sax. And um, I was impressed. I, I thought they did say. a really good job. Um, I thought it was really good. Um, something happened. We also, the way they do voting sometimes, like right now there's a bond yeah. for the school that they're voting on. And so they plan it. So the concert's on the same night as the vote. Right. So that when you come in to go to the concert, they're like, oh, and you can go vote right now. So right. we voted to pass It's good because you have engaged parents coming, which counterweighs the people who are not going to come out in the freezing cold to vote against the bond because they don't care, you know. So Exactly. Good, yeah. But um, something kind of happened that I wanted to talk about. There's a, a woman that goes to my church, um, you know, and, and I know her in that way. I actually, 
um, knew her, her kids really well because they came up in the Sunday school when I was there and when I did the youth group. And uh, she always has this Christmas party uh, every year. And it inevitably, and my parents always go, it's like people from the church get invited and her friends. The only time I went, it was like adult booze party. She even said no kids allowed type of thing. Oh. And, uh, and so she's very aggressive with asking people to come and all of that. And so she accosted me at this <laughs> concert. And she was just going to vote. She wasn't going to the concert. Her kids were grown. Right. She said, oh, are, you, are you coming to my party? And keep in mind, I haven't gone since I got sober. Yeah. You know, it's been like five years. And I said, oh, no, I, you know, I try and be nice. I can't, you know, we've got something or whatever. Right. You know, just kind of like, all right, leave it there, lady. I, I said no, you mm-hmm. know. Oh, well, but, 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 and did really? you get a babysitter? I'm like, yeah, we can't do it. I'm so sorry, but I, I, you know, I'm sure you'll have a good time is what I said. Mm-hmm. And then she goes, oh, well, what about next week? Uh, so-and-so is also having a party, you know, da, da, da. And I said, no, no, those are, I said, no, nope, probably not going to that one. You know, <laughs> um, it's just, I said, those are my parents' friends. And I said, and I don't want to, you know, um, you know, be a damper on their good time. Like, kind of joking. <laughs> and she looked at me and was like, Thanks a lot. And got in her car. Seriously? Yeah. And I was like, wow, holy shit. And I said to my dad the next day, I said, I think I, you know, could you maybe explain to her delicately that there's a good reason that I don't go to these parties? Yeah. And it just, and he goes, yeah, she's going through a lot. Don't, you know, I'm like, and she (laughs) is, she believe me. Um, But still, I mean, that made me feel like shit a little bit for like. Yeah, but the, the problem is really with her. It's not yeah. with you. But I I'm mean, like, I said no in the nicest way. And if you're going to keep, I don't know. And that was just annoying. But we saw you, you could have just told her to go fuck herself. I too. could have, but she's a churchy, you know. I'm eh. a de- I have to like maintain oh, right. some kind of. Deacon that. Right. Um, I don't know. Um, <laughs> did you want to read about uh, the, uh, uh, what you might call it, the update from Marina? Yeah, I want to get to uh, Aaron. We've got about. I told her about. So Rhina today, in fact, is heading to uh, to rehab, if I'm not mistaken. Because yesterday he posted on the R in the RMA Facebook group that tomorrow is the day. He said, "I've been waiting at a fuggin' f u g g i n. I like, I love that AA clubhouse in South Florida for over two weeks. Came from Chicago to get into this treatment center tomorrow at 10 a.m. I am set to enter. I'm exhaustively bored and anxious all the time. My brain is wrecked." I need to believe this will work out and get better. Much love, Rhina J. I think it will work out, Rhina. I think you have the right mindset. I think you have the stick to and I think you, you were oriented in the right way. And you reached out to us. Yeah. And you reached out to the community of, of RMA. And everybody supports you 100%. We'll always be here for you to help you uh, when you get out. Um, I don't know if they let you have a phone in there. Uh, but you know, we're yep. always around. You can always drop me a text message or, or Nat, you know, either, either way. Yeah. Know. He's been reaching out a lot. I've been talking to him just about every day for the past couple of weeks while he's been there. And, uh, you know, it's been tough for him, you know, waiting for that bed. He's you know lucky to have these people putting him up and he's taken that step. Um, you know, and this brings me to my random thought, which I'm going to slide into this part. Um, slide it in. So I'm going to slide it in. Um, recovery, guys, is a team sport. That's what I wanted to say. You know, when I'm talking to Ryan, Ryan or Rhina, uh, and anybody else on the Recovery in the Middle Ages group, anybody who writes us, like this is part of my recovery is helping and being helped, and it's all part of the same thing. And um, and I'm, I've always I'm taken aback when people are like, "Oh, I can't believe you answered." and you know, they they just can't believe that we would 
just be helping and trying they to be there. They only have a few fans that we actually Right. Have. <laughs> You're the only one. We're just sitting around waiting yeah. for emails. <laughs> but uh, you know what? This is a team effort. And when I help you, it helps me. You know, the, this podcast is not like how we earn a living, right? It, That's for sure. It's how we recover <laughs> together. So we can all stay happy and sober you know, helping each other. And that's what this is all about. Um, you know, you don't join the, the private group and then we send you a bill. It's just <laughs> it's part of our recovery uh, yes. to help out. So we're very happy that uh, hopefully Ryan is doing his thing and um, hopefully we'll hear from him Rhina? when he gets a chance. Rhina or Ryan? <laughs> he puts Rhina on his Facebook name, but his right. actual name. It's actual Ryan, Ryan yeah. right? Yeah, Thank you so, okay. so much for that. Um, I was are, we, getting, are we getting to the, to where we have to call Aaron yet? Yeah. We should call Aaron. Um, what else we got, though? Oh, you know, I wanted to talk about, how, I think we talked about this last time, about how I'm too Pollyanna. Um, <laughs> I, I think we skipped it last time. But well, so, uh, please, engage in self-criticism. I just, I yeah, I'm going to criticize myself, because that's what I do best. Um, <laughs> sometimes I think I'm being too Pollyanna. What does that mean? What does that mean? Toxic positivity. Oh. What does that mean? Yeah. Like, I don't want to be the guy that's just, no matter what is... You know, up, uppy, uppy, yuppy, smiley, everything's fine. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and it's a delicate balance because where I want to be positive and I want, I don't want to catastrophize little things, I feel like I'm running the risk of minimizing something that might need serious attention. And maybe, you know, I don't know. I'm just feeling like, I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I don't want it to be toxically positive. I want to, because if I do that, and I'm, all I do is rah, rah, cheer you on, you're doing great, mm -hmm. then eventually that person isn't going to trust what I'm saying because all I ever do yeah. is, you know, rah, rah. Right. You only have okay. one, uh, one response when somebody is right. approaching you with a problem or an issue. Yeah, I, I agree. I try to provide practical advice, you know, but I don't know. What do you, what's your take on that? I think it's very easy to be... I, I think it depends on who you are as a person, like what your innate level of positivity is, because I think that is very different for different people. Mm -hmm. Like you always seem like a positive person. Right. I feel like I'm a positive person and yeah. I try and see the best in every situation. Yeah. Right. And give people the benefit of so, the doubt. So for me to sort of pretend to be less positive about things that I feel positively about would also come across as inauthentic, I think. Mm. But... Um, from like reading a lot about Buddhism and meditating and stuff, you know, you get this, this way that you look at the world where, you know, you, you just see everything sort of as it is. And, and the, the level of positivity that you bring to any situation will be dictated by this, by the situation, which you really have to pay attention Yeah, because it's easy to sort of offhandedly, you know, be default to that positivity. And maybe it's not warranted in that situation, right? Yeah. I mean... And that's what I'm trying to do. Um, you're trying to... Just give yeah. practical... Like, if somebody says something that is actually horrible that's happened to them, I'm not... I don't want to dismiss it, and I want to... But be able to show, help show a positive way forward. Yes. Maybe, you know, lead the person in a more positive, proactive direction without, um, you know, completely being dismissive of what they're, uh, what they're going through. So... On, on the other hand, though... Like, I cannot stand toxic negativity. Right. That drives me way more up the wall than toxic positivity does. Like, if people who are just, you know, Debbie Downers all the time and can't, can't find the good in anything and are just constantly negative, yeah. I think that... That's draining. It's draining. But, 
you know, whether or not people are able to change that view, I think depends on where they are, you know, spiritual, not spiritually, that's the wrong term, like, um, you know, mentally, like, because you can, you can definitely change the way you think about situations, right? Yeah, you can make yourself. But you also have sort of a baseline. That's true, yeah, like. I don't know. And I think you can change that too over time by changing your outlook. Yeah. Meditating, you know, reading. And, and the better you get and the more recovery you have and the, the more you do the internal work and the more that you focus on understanding why you feel the way you feel. Yeah. Your responses to people are, are going to be more authentic. Yeah. And I, I've, I've recognized that, that I have more healthy responses to stressful situations yes. since I've been recovered. Um, we could talk, do a whole a show on that one. topic. Yeah. I think we should talk about that. I concur. More. A whole show on it. Yeah. I love it. Um, <laughs> okay. Now it's time to call the great Aaron Moore for Get Smart. Great. Um, are Do you we know whose phone is connected? It's not mine. I just tried to. We're going to give okay. her a call. She's expecting do you, us. Do you have her uh, number handy? Because I Because sure I'm just going to unpair my phone, and I'm going to pair your phone. <laughs> All right. Here we go. All right. Wrangle that phone. Hello. Hey, it worked. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Um, welcome to the show. This is Get Smart with Aaron Moore, and thank you so much for working with my uh, scheduling idiocy. And I'm happy to have you back on the show. How have you been? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. How about y'all? Oh, you know. Yeah, just, you know, <laughs> just embracing the holiday Matt season. Matt his absolute panic uh, last night. Uh, I'm like, really? Okay, that's, that works too. It's all good. Oh, sure, that works. Yeah, I woke up this morning and I looked at my phone and there were 39 messages. And I'm like, <laughs> I know. I'm like, that seems an, uh, a bit much. I was, I was like, did somebody die? Uh, I need my schedule to be the way it is. I know. And I'm like, oh, no. Oh, but whatever. It was a great concert. Um, oh, we were going to talk about how group. <laughs> we got to say it was really cool. I did what I was supposed to do as a dad. I stopped everything. And um, went to the concert. So uh, I thought you were going to say you stopped the concert. I should have. Complained. But you stood up and said, "Max, you're not playing that note right. <laughs> this is bullshit. Turn this off." Um, <laughs> uh, so we we got you on this week to talk about. We thought it would be cool to, you know, maybe talk about an article that was in the news and get your commentary. on We do it. that occasionally. Yeah. Um, and so the article we picked. Um, for Aaron was the uh, the new Maya Zolovitz article. It's opioids feel like love. That's why they're deadly in tough times. I was in the New York Times this week, 12 6 Yeah, yeah. So what did you think, Aaron? Is it, <laughs> are opioids just like love? <laughs> I mean, it was really interesting to read this as, um, you know, it's something I feel like we've always known about heroin or opioids, you know, be, because, you know, we didn't know how to put our finger on it. And I think part of why they make you write like a, a breakup letter to, you know, your addiction. I don't know if you've ever done this. No, the, I've it never. makes you know, well, they do this in rehabs, you know, because you really are breaking up with something that gave you love. And then this is saying that that's actually love that you're <laughs> you're getting. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I just kind of had to ghost mine. I never wrote a letter um, to it. I just, <laughs> I, I did the whole text breakup. No, I, uh, you know, it's actually interesting. I, this is something that really is, is near and dear to my heart in more than one way. One, as uh, a recovering uh, opiate addict, but two, because uh Professionally, I've worked for a really long time in the perinatal field, and if you're not anyone who's not familiar with what that is, that's uh, around, around birth. So, having to do with um, you know pregnant uh, mothers and then um, postpartum, you know, right after they have a baby and and going forward. And one of the interesting um, you know, I mean, this completely tracks. Like, you know, Maya's on the right track as far as physiologically that um, there is a lot in, uh, like, our biology that, like, if you had, you know, I, I mean, you may remember, like, when your children were born, they may or may not have kind of pushed, like, a skin-to-skin Oh, yeah. You know, yep. in the hospital, like get baby skin to skin. Like, that serves more than one mechanism. It's, they're not just like, oh, you should want to hug your baby. Like, that. that's really a base, you know, way of, of thinking about it. Really, it has more to do with physiologically what happens. And that is that not only um, does it seem to release those, you know, quote unquote, love hormones in babies. But also in mothers, which helps with things like milk letdown, the milk ejection reflex, that type of thing. So um, that's just one aspect. And it is it is due to like what she talks about, you know, oxytocin, endorphins, all of that is absolutely um, at play there physiologically. But also um, the other thing is that that's, that's kind of one of the things behind uh, the recordings and research that we've had for decades that things like uh, breastfeeding and skin-to-skin contact um, early on actually have something to do in some correlation with reduced, like, child abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it could be easy to look at that like, well, you're just, you know, it's propaganda. Like, it sounds really judgmental if you don't know what that means physiologically. And what that means is that the more love hormones are involved in your bond with your baby, like the actual physiological love hormones, um, the more, you know, the less likely that you're going to have the incidence of, of child abuse, right? So that has more to do with the association that happens in your brain when you see your baby. Um, okay. And it's not to say that, oh, women that don't breastfeed, you know, that has nothing to do with it. It doesn't, it only um, reduces the risk sometime. It doesn't increase the risk if you don't. I hope I hope that's clear because um, I never <laughs> want it to sound like I'm saying, well, you know, there, there's some correlation between those in that way because there, there doesn't seem to be, but fostering those hormones actually being released by having your baby close, um, yeah, that just kind of stands to reason in some way. So all of this tracks with, that, yeah, if, if using opioids, um, you know, really hits at those centers that produce oxytocin and receive oxytocin and endorphins, then, then yeah, um, and that's kind of equated with love. Yeah, and, and just to, you, if you follow that to the logical conclusion, you know, um, 
you know, the, the whole like overarching idea here that, that she puts forward is that, um, you know, the opposite of, of addiction is, is love, right? That's how she ends the article because, um, you know, addiction is a disease of alienation to some, to a large extent. Right. So if you don't have yeah. like the, the, the bonds between, you know, maybe you as a, as a child, if you're experiencing, you know, all these adverse childhood experiences in the home, um, you know, you're, you're far more susceptible to, um, to addiction, you know, as, as a young adult and beyond. I mean, the, the, the link between the opioids and the feelings of love and connection, um, you know, gives you a, a clue as to who's like more vulnerable, right? I mean, people who experience childhood trauma and neglect you are much higher risk yeah. for opioid addiction. Right. Um, you know, we've talked on this show before about ACEs, you know, the adverse childhood events. And honestly, we think about those in terms of traumatic things that might have happened to us or for us, but ACEs also include things that didn't. Yeah, right. That's right. You know, and neglect and, and a feeling of alienation from our families. And so, yeah, that kind of stands to reason what we've been deprived of. We're, we're going to try to make up for somewhere, sometimes chemically. Yeah. And, um, and uh, my, it's Maya. Is her name Mia or Maya? Maya. Maya, Maya um, I think what she's doing here is she's taking, because uh, some of it was a study from 20 years ago. She said that it's only now getting talked about. But she's like connecting a lot of these dots and um, it's it's cool to be able to, you know, c- to look back at some other works that we've read, uh, like Dr. Gabor Mate talked to, you know, a lot of his premise was these little traumas or big traumas are things. And I think maybe we can explain it um, with with this, the fact that um, that it it, uh, it makes you feel like you're in love. Um, I wanted to read a couple of parts of this article just to give uh, the listeners some idea of where um, she's going with this. Um, She writes, the connections between brain opioids and motherly love were first explored by the neuroscientist Jack Penskep decades ago. Yeah, that's the study I was talking about. Dr. Penskep, who died in 2017, told me that when he first tried to publish data connecting brain opioids to attachment, he was rebuffed by a top medical journal. His research showed that morphine in doses so low it didn't cause sleepiness eased separation cries made by baby animals in multiple species. So that was another interesting part of this, that the people doing the studies that saying, hey, actually, look at this. Um, the body has endogenous um, opioids, I guess. Right. And, and so this could have some connection to you know, to heroin and love and <laughs> opioids, and they didn't want to talk about it. Um, and he he came up with something called the brain opioid theory of social attachment, which is sort of what we were talking about. And uh, and from the the white paper, uh, it it says one neurobiological mechanism that has been overlooked is the endogenous opioid system, though less explicitly researched than the more familiar oxytocin vasopressin system, there is considerable evidence that the opioids play a fundamental role in sociality, especially in the primates, which I guess we are. That's us. Yeah. Um, Right. It's really interesting because it it, it kind of either explains or or opens up some lines of discussion on stuff we've been talking about just behaviorally, you know, with um, opioids. Um, Yeah, and I'm no conspiracy theorist except... 
when the conspiracies are true, I mean, think about the other things that were going on in the world of opioids 20 years ago. I mean, that was kind of the height of them trying to bury the lead about opioids in general um, in order to market them um, and mass market them uh, and assert that, well, there's no risk here. You know, very few people will become addicted, which is one of those things you just laugh at. I mean, really, you know, today we could be like, oh, okay. Um, you know, a lot more people become addicted uh, with prolonged use than, you know, than we ever, than we probably know about today, but definitely way more than they were willing to look at back then. So, of course, most things that, you know, most things that people tend to, you know, have the propensity to benefit financially from, they're, they're not, they're going to try to suppress that in a, in a, you know, even in a research scenario yeah, um, the money they're, they're gonna say well that can't you know because then they, then you'd have to admit at that point that you have these people that are you know maybe innately and inherently susceptible because of those aces or whatever and maybe it would have put the brakes um, on the way that they uh presented it and the way that they uh marketed it well one of the things that i i thought was interesting i mean this is it's really interesting to sort of get a sense of the biology, but, you know, I'm, my mind kind of goes forward into looking like, what, what can you do about this? Because, you know, you have, um, the pandemic, you have, um, you know, if, if the biggest risk factors for opioid overdose and opioid use are social disconnection, uh, and, and using alone, uh, you know, the pandemic lockdowns, uh, which increased loneliness and, and, you know, increase the number of people that, that overdose, you know, um, you know, what do you, what do you do? How do you make people be more connected to other people? I guess well, is, I don't is my think question. you can make anyone do anything. Well, how do you, or how do, I guess a better question is like, how do you set up a social structure? It's called AA. Yeah, a, a That's social, what AA does. A social structure that connects people. Hey, yeah. Yeah, no. They have that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's and free. It just comes with a whole bunch of other stuff. I mean, well, yeah. So <laughs> in, a, in a general way, sure, AA is, is one avenue for some people that that might be, you know, some, some you know, need will be fulfilled. But certainly any platform and any scenario where someone might feel more connected or be, have the ability to become more connected or connected at all is, is a good thing. So, you know, let's, let's look at, well, what are things like AA as far as the connection goes that, that aren't AA, right? We've got, I mean, even our weekly Zoom meeting, uh, that's at 1130 Eastern time, not right. well, <laughs> kind of a um, you know, that's one forum uh, for people that that feel, you know, that feel maybe a little lonelier the absence of seeing people as much. Um, the Facebook group and groups like it, uh, you know, really any any medium, uh, any of the Zoom meetings that you'll find, whether they're 12-step or not, Smart Recovery, some of our, um, you know, listeners and, and friends on, on the Facebook group and in that Zoom meeting, we're talking about, you know, having some connection there. Um I mean, really, anything, any group setting, or even one-on-one connection uh, setting that fosters that therapy. You know, therapy is a great way 
um, one, to resolve some of those unmet needs and, and really get to the bottom of what some of them are and learn to, you know, maybe heal some of them to where our need for replacing those hormones uh, chemically or, or medically aren't quite as great. Mm. Yeah, and, uh, and that's something that I've been noticing more and more about recovery is how important community is to recovery, even just looking at mine. Um, I mean, most of the time when someone tries to do this alone, I mean, that's one of the things I always beat in your head. This is a we program. Uh, you don't do it alone, you know, even if it's just for seeking out experts' help. The experts inevitably tell you to, you know, you know if you go to a professional outpatient place, they insist on mm. group meetings. But um, uh, one of the other things that Maya points out uh, is, is sort of, you know, is this true? Does the research bear this out uh, as far as it helping? And the answer is yes, it does. Um, she says the link between opioids and feelings of love and connection off also offers clues as to who is most vulnerable. People who experience childhood trauma and neglect are at high risk for opioid addiction. Addiction. People with mental illness or developmental disorders, which often bring isolation, are also highly susceptible. Um, research has also shown that low social capital, which is a measure of how much people feel connected, trust one another, and are part of their community is strongly linked with overdose fatalities. Uh, one study that looked closely at individual counties found that those with more civic organizations, nonprofits, and greater participation in elections and the census uh, tended to have far fewer overdose deaths, interestingly. Conversely, neighborhoods riven by poverty tend to have less social connectedness and more overdoses. Um, so all we have to do is is get everybody connected socially. That's all. Keep everybody connected. But <laughs> what did we do in a pandemic? I mean, and part of what she talks about in this article is, you know, and we've all known people who have, you know, relapsed in this pandemic because all of the social services people were depending on, meetings, even their outpatients, even probation. You can even think about going to your probation as some kind of community um, in, in some way where you're reaching out to someone and they're, they're sure. there for you. Yeah. When that all went away. Uh, a lot of people got lost in, in it. You know, well, what but, about the ubiquity and the availability of, of opiates? Yeah. Or, you know, I mean, well, because I mean, really you should attack it from two different fronts. Um, right. You know, you shouldn't be putting people in jail for being addicts that I think we can all agree on, but yeah, you know, how do you stop the, the inflow of, well, harm reduction would say you don't think about that. You think, think about you have to think regulating about it and safe supply. Now we're getting into harm reduction, which um, right. I don't know. What do you think, Erin? Well, I mean, I certainly it's a good question uh, when it comes to, you know, unfortunately they've even attacked that from maybe the wrong angle in that, you know, lots of people with uh, legitimate chronic pain um uh, conditions and that have never shown any uh, sign of misusing their opioids are oftentimes cut off because, you know, this, they, as far as overprescribing, that happened for so long. And obviously, we, we've seen the, uh, you know, just devastating effects of that. They went kind of to the other end of the, you know, the pendulum. Mm. all the way to the other end of the spectrum and 
you know, now they're trying to attack that much like putting someone in prison, right? For, you know, criminalizing drugs. Like, it, all it does is it, it may cut off, you know, the, uh, the traditional supply. But, I mean, drugs are as rampant in prison, and I know lots of people that have said they have found it easier to get than on the street. So yeah, it still I've doesn't solve the problem, you know, it's just like cutting people off of their medications cold turkey, you know, there's that whole uh, progression from maybe they were misusing their prescriptions, but now they're forced, you know, underground, they're forced into uh, heroin when maybe, you know, they were misusing oxycodone, which, I mean, obviously was at least safer because they knew what was in it, and they knew how much was in it, and they kind of knew what the intended effect would be for the most part. Yeah, I'm, and then there's people like me who just wanted to get high. And um, and I think what, what this... Uh, oh, you throw the fentanyl in there, yeah. and all of a sudden it's... It, I mean, that's why you have 100,000 dead people a year. So, right. you know, should, maybe, maybe what you need to do is go, go after the fentanyl producers. I mean, I, I'm hardly like the DEA war on drugs kind of guy, but, yeah. but I think... You're looking at basically a, what's an it's a national emergency. I mean, yeah, it is, and and the efforts to stop it. You know, I think what's happening is you have two two camps now in fighting. You know, uh, the overdose deaths. I mean, there's the people who like are focused on stopping the flow completely, and then there's so those of us who well, say you're never going to stop it. Well, that's right? the thing. So then, how do we make it safer? But what Maya Zvalovitz, why can't I say her name? What she's really <laughs> Too many getting consonants. at. She's really making a point that should help us, um, like, understand where can we attack this before it even becomes a problem, which is with community. Yes. And having support. Her argument is less people will turn to these drugs if there's greater sense of community. Right. And people are, are able to be more connected with the people around them. And I, I think that's a very tall order uh, in terms of how you well, basically have to remake a society yeah. to make us all nicer yeah. to one another. Like how on earth is that going to happen mm. in America? You know? Well, and one place that I've seen her very active herself is on Twitter. So if you think about, you know, we often think of these real traditional, uh, support systems, even, even with AA or with, uh, you know, traditional group settings, but, you've got whole communities of people that are really connected on, on social media. And, you know, that's an outlet for some people. Uh, Twitter is a real, um, you know, is a real support system for a lot of people. TikTok, uh, Facebook, I mean, whatever, you know, shit, Pinterest. I mean, wherever it is that you find some feeling of belonging, mm. uh, you know, you're, that, that's, that's not, it doesn't have to be called an addiction Right. Support system, or it doesn't have to be called therapy to be actually therapeutic. Yeah. And I, I think um, to me, like, you know, I, I get a lot of the community feeling from church, and I get a lot of it from the groups that we have. And it also, you know, made me kind of realize that, you know, because some people, they'll say, oh, you go to church, then you must agree with this dogma and that dogma. And <laughs> right, I was hurt right. by this priest and that, mm -hmm. you know. And, or even with AA too, if you've got a group that's supporting and that you love and that helped you get sober, and then you have someone come along and say, well, Bill Wilson, you know, took LSD to, you know, understand, like that stuff almost, you know, isn't important when really, 
Same thing with church. Like, I don't agree with everything, you know, every Christian says or every church did. But what I do know is that my community of people who, you know, it's really just a community of people. And I think, you know, not getting too tied up in some of the things you may or may not agree with is less important than the community, the sense of support that you get from these groups. I Depends think. on right. the group. And zooming out, you know, to... You know, I won't specify, although I've alluded to it and probably all outside it in other episodes, just zooming out from which fellowship necessarily, because right. it's not, it's hardly pertinent. I'm a, you know, a, a really uh, a buy-in to the 12-step concept, personally, mm-hmm. to, to you know, to a certain degree. Like, but I, I think that we would all do well to be able to be a part of communities, even if we don't agree with every last little thing, or, you know, we see that in some cases they may have caused harm, which we've talked about, uh, particularly on the episode that we talked about sponsorship. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm gladly, uh, you know, I'm gladly critical of, of 12-step fellowship and of particular groups or whatever openly. Um, and still find some way to be a part of it because I know that I could throw any baby out with any bathwater, uh, and it's part—it's kind of my nature. Right. Um, and as someone who has been addicted to see the negative in things, and and my disease is very uh, resistant to group settings and places where I might get connection because, I mean, it kind of cuts them off, right? right. It kind of cuts my disease off when when I'm getting better. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Like having to come here every week and, uh, for, you know, when Mike and I sit down and we do, this is our meeting. This is it. This and, and the, and the RMA zoom meetings and the fellowship we've, I mean, I've been warned about this by, uh, by other podcast hosts that this shouldn't be your program, your show, you know, but for me, this is, this is what this is. This is that we, you know, created a community um, and, um, and well, I think it's, a it's part really important. Of your picture. Right. Um, you know, is it enough to sustain you entirely? No, but you've already talked about, you know, you've got a church community and you've got a family at home and I mean, you've got a lot of different components that make that up. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with this being it, part of how you make connection. It's the only reason you're doing it was to connect with people. Otherwise you'd be talking yourself in a closet somewhere plenty of those podcasts exist but the question is (laughs) yeah i know why do i so why do i still feel lonely sometimes this is another thing like you're a human being i sometimes even though i'm sometimes i feel like it's it's a non-stop like people coming in and out of my life and talking you know and being involved in things I will still feel lonely. Is I mean that's a particular neurosis. I think that yeah, I, I think that's part of the human condition. Well, I mean, why you, should I be feel lonely if we're surrounded by so many people be, who? Because just being surrounded well, by shit, people, I, you know. <laughs> we are, but you know, I mean, if I sat down with with Matt and talked about, you know, or any of us, I mean, I could probably, you know, point to some things if I knew more about, you know, some things specifically. If I knew more about your, you know, your history from birth and that type of thing. But in general, it probably has, you know, some to do with nature and some to do with nurture. Yeah. And I think one of the things I got out of listening to podcasts when I first started, like really getting into it, I, it helped me feel like I wasn't lonely. And I think I do that too 
you know, with other pod, like I listen to, you know, everybody knows I, I uh, snuggle up with my paranormal podcast every night when I go to sleep. And it, it's this because I don't, I don't feel as lonely mm. when I, and I have somebody yammering in my ear. Uh, and so maybe that's another thing, you know, that I tell people who are, are looking for support. I say, you know, get yourself some, you know, earbuds or earphones and download well, yeah. books, down, listen to podcasts. I mean, um, it, it's definitely helpful, but yeah, I, I think it's her point is well taken. And, and I like how she's tying this idea of community but, back to, you know, the biological. But I, I think you also have to be comfortable with the idea that sometimes you have to be alone with yourself and you have to be comfortable with being alone right. with yourself. Being comfortable alone is something I've been working on, you know, in mm. therapy because you have to, like I said, the one time when I was in um, therapy at the end of an outpatient and the therapist at the beginning of us working together said, I'm going to try and get Nat to love Nat. Mm. And, and then me hearing that and thinking that was the most absurd thing anyone had ever said to me, <laughs> you know, but once I was it more, like Stuart Smalley or something, right? I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. <laughs> doggone if people like me, <laughs> but I finally, and, and because I don't hate myself quite so much, I'm less, you know, uncomfortable when I'm alone. And I think that's a big part of yeah. recovery too, being comfortable in your own skin. I mean, I've had to do, you know, when I would travel a lot for work, I would be surrounded by people on airplanes and in airports and in hotels. And it was the most lonely experience ever because, you know, there was no, there's no connection with people. While you're traveling. Yeah. But I had to sort of, you know, so what I would usually do is put my head down and just consume media, uh, books or TV or anything I could get to distract myself from myself. Um, but you know, Last few times I've I've traveled, I've been trying to deliberately step away from that mm-hmm. and just maybe be a little maybe a little more proactive, like do some writing or do some, you know, pr- getting the things that are in my head out. See, I'm the guy that talks to strangers. Yeah, I can't do that. I, like I have <laughs> I a hard time with that. I was the guy when I was commuting to Manhattan. I would get on. <laughs> I do not yeah. talk to strangers because I don't yeah. want them talking to me. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I hate to. I always say, "Hey, uh, I'll find an inn and I'll I'll look at something they're doing and be like, oh, so you you know, bet on the horses, you know." And um, it was worse. Don't when come I, to the south and like you will. I mean, what the first time uh, I you know I grew up in on the west coast and in a pretty progressive and larger city i didn't know my damn neighbors i didn't nobody knew their neighbors really and when i moved here the first time some someone was talking to me in the grocery line i was like are they trying to jack my shit like (laughs) what's going on you know i'm holding on to my purse because i feel like you just don't randomly talk to people (laughs) and i've been here for 17 years and i'm a little now my kids will be like, why do you have to talk to everyone? I'm like, you don't even understand. This isn't even me talking to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I <laughs> love saying, because I'm not about that life. I always try and make <laughs> eye contact with people. I make a conscious effort when I'm just walking down the street. If it's not weird to acknowledge the person oh walking, God, you know, I don't want, weird, yeah. I'm not like winking and, you know, Hey, over here, but I try, <laughs> I try and acknowledge people's humanity and like people come into my shop. I don't know who sure, they are. Sure. I try and treat them like we're longtime friends, you know, and sometimes people are confused by that because they start to think they do know me <laughs> and this has happened. Well, before, and you know, you know what's surprising? Like, you know, if you've ever worked retail, then you know why this is surprising, but 
what I do, I will say this, anytime I'm in a, you know, checkout line or dealing with someone in customer service, if I happen to get their name or see their name on their name tag, you should see, it's like they practically, they can't believe it when you use their name, when <laughs> yeah. you say, you know, thank you, <laughs> right? you know, Matt, and they're like, what? Like, I, you know, because most people are, you know, they don't treat people in the service industry or any customer facing industry like humans a lot of the time. Yeah, it's so you know, sad. So it is a small True. thing. That's connection. Yeah, that you is know, connection. connection. And uh, she, um, what Maya does in her article is, she, this is a good article. Um, she wraps it up, though, at the end with some advice on how, because I think what she's trying to get at, and God, I, I hope we get her on the show because she is really getting to something. I feel like, you know, she's in the field and she's, you know, publishing articles and she's coming out with these theories and she's going to get us closer to that unified field theory. But she, um, what I highlighted it for one of the final things she says, uh, she writes, instead of punishment, people with addiction need the chance to learn healthier ways of coping, which will require a variety of resources. Some need psychiatric medications, including opioids themselves. Long-term use of methadone or buprenorphine is the only treatment proven to cut the death rate from opioids by half or more. Some need therapy or stable housing or meaningful work. Some need new friends, and many need all of the above. None need jail simply for trying to feel okay. To paraphrase the writer, paraphrase the writer Johan Hari, the opposite of addiction isn't abstinence. It's love. Right on. Yeah, yeah. So well, she nails applause. it. Yeah. And she's always been real. Um, you know, I've, I've been following um, Maya for years. And initially, because like I've mentioned to y'all before, she was one of the first and really only people to write about the troubled teen industry. And this yeah. was years and years ago before mm-hmm. anyone was talking about it. And so, you know, that was the only place I ever read anything about it. But she's always been a champion. Uh, places like the platforms like Twitter and other public forums uh, for decriminalization, for, um, you know, potentially for, you know, she's not out there pushing MAT, but she definitely, you know, presents evidence on a regular basis um, about MAT and, and that it, it is, that's, that's tr- a true statistic, that is it's the only real proven uh, medical treatment um and you know uh, it's the only one with with prodigious results anyway i'm surprised the pharmaceutical um, industry hasn't latched onto that and started pushing it well they've tried yeah. they've tried do you know do you know that the sackler family has tried to uh get hold of the ability to <laughs> i mean it's almost laughable but it's so disgusting um you know, to be able to produce a buprenorphine product. <laughs> Create the need, oh, fill the need. It's, uh, it's amazing. Oh, God, it's so, what do you mean? Oh, like, uh, so like edible, like putting it in brownies or something? No, no, that, well, just, no, like they're going to be able to become manufacturers. Yeah, they're going to profit uh, off know, what uh, they created. Yeah. They're going to profit <laughs> off the addiction by now, you know, coming up with different formulations of buprenorphine. Oh, so, huh? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. create Sorry. the addicts and then treat the addicts. Off. That's capitalism, yeah. guys. Yeah, I think <laughs> if they had not been exposed the way that they were, it would have already that would have already happened. Yeah. I just uh, noted today that the uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art is taking the Sackler family name off of the uh, the wing. 
that they funded. Are they returning the money? Yeah. Are they going to return the money? Um, of course. I don't not. think they I can return the Temple of Dendor, but uh, yeah, you know, that's that's probably for the best. I mean, and it's okay with me if they don't. You know, I yeah. I do think you know I think that there's some honor in not taking money from sources, but but uh, you know I think you only know what you know when you know it. Right. Agreed. And I think good for them if they keep it. Uh, that's the way I feel, unless they're trying to make a statement. But otherwise, good for them. Right. Well, um, I think we're going to end it here. But before we go, because we've got a couple more articles, we were going to do a couple articles in Recovery in the News, but we wanted you to come on and comment on this one because yeah. we did have some some good debate on this one on the group. Um, uh, but I did want to ask you before we let you go, are you going to call in to the RMA hotline and leave us a little holiday message for the special? She, she did. Um, well, did I mean, she leave I already one? left you a real okay. fucking gold mine. Oh, you well, didn't tell me. I see, did. Mike's see, got I, I texted him and I said, I said, Aaron left us a message because oh. that's how it was translated. I'm like, who's Aaron? But it, but it was Aaron. Oh, okay. So I meant to mention right, that. I apologize. Right. So I spoke too soon. Thank you for leaving message. <laughs> yeah. It's going to yeah. be very cool. No, no, you're welcome. <laughs> I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And um, yeah, we're looking forward to it. We're gonna have uh, we're gonna be able to squeeze one in that we could probably release on Christmas Eve. Eve, all right. You know, because uh, we're dedicated to it. Um, yeah. So if you want to find Erin, um, she's her website is fallingphoenix.com. Did I say that right? Falling. It's not. Yeah. Okay. Or you can track me down over at the RMA Facebook group, and yeah. we we have some kind of conversations over there, y'all. So do it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, all of your help and um and for working with us on this crazy day in the RMA podcast. <laughs> oh, wild and crazy guys. <laughs> yes, you're keeping it crazy. Uh, yeah, I love y'all. All right, we all love right. you too, you and too, we Aaron. will see you on the private group. Bye. Yeah, I'll see you on Zoom on Sunday. All right, see you there. Thanks. Bye. Bye. <laughs> I just go. Bye. Are you right. uh, you going to the Zoom meeting this Sunday? Um, or is it? Are we still in the middle of preparations well, for? So this Sunday, I know for a fact I've got to be at the church before church to do a rehearsal. It's mm. eight forty-five. So I don't know if that means. They're not doing it after. I think it does. Yeah. So if that's the case, I will 100% be there. Super. Um, because I've missed the last couple of weeks because of the, the Christmas pageant. Um, and as much joy as it gives me, I want to. I feel like I'm missing something. I have fear of missing out. Um, FOMO, the FOMO. kids call that. Uh, the guy said, uh, somebody told me they came up with a service position for me. Uh, which is something they do in AA meetings. Uh, you do, somebody makes the coffee, right. and there's someone who's like, I was usually the greeter or took the garbage out. Right, right. So right. I'm, I'm happy to take on another service position. Um, so uh, that was great, getting Aaron on to comment yeah. on that. Um, we, Should we just go right on, or do you need a break? I think I'm going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back after these words. We're back. And we're back. I just like saying that. I like saying we're back. Um, what time is it? Okay, we're, we're running long, so we're not going to do as many articles as we wanted to. I meant to tell you at the beginning of the show uh-huh. that um, 
because I go under all this mental pressure that I put on myself because there's so many things uh, that I'm forgetting or not doing or doing. Mm. In any case, when we went to the Polar Express, there is a special gift shop there that we always stop at. It's kind of weird. They have rubber ducks and all different rubber ducks. And okay. It's an entire store with different rubber ducks. All right. Best way I can describe it. So I was shopping. I always buy one rubber duck for myself. <laughs> always. And, and uh, you know, they're cool collectibles. And I saw one that I just had to get for you. No, you didn't buy me a present. Oh, look at this. So here it it's is. In a very nice bag See, from, from the, the EssexDuck.com. Yeah. I give them a little plug. I see. Wow, look at that. Look at that. It is... <laughs> It's a Jerry Garcia duck. That's right. It says duckin' on the front, which I, is like a play on truckin', I'm guessing. Yeah. Look at so. that. That is, Nat, thank it, you very much. It's, it's, a, it's, coll- a, it's a collectible. It's, it's in a tie-dyed box. Yeah. It's really, uh, this is really something. I will um, I will put a picture of this in the Facebook page. Yes. So uh, You have to see yeah. it. So I couldn't thank pass it Thank you very much. Uh, very well. Uh, it, will, it will receive a place of honor in my home. <laughs> it's proof. For I'm sure. always thinking about the show. We really <laughs> and, are. Uh, Making, <laughs> but I couldn't pass it up, so okay. that's my special surprise. Thank you. Thank you very much. Very kind. Enjoy. I'm not I sure know. what you'll do with it. I'm uh, sure it'll go on your mantle. I don't know what I'll do with it either, but I'm going to do something with I'm it. I'm thinking so. fireplace center. Center fireplace. I'm going to put it in the nativity scene. <laughs> I already have baby Yoda in there. so I think it'll be perfect. Okay. So there you go. Duck All it. right. So now it's time for... Recovering the news. Yeah. All right. Recovering the news. Recovering <laughs> you look so happy when you do that. <laughs> it makes me so uh, happy. It does make you so happy. Um, so uh, an article from the old gray lady this week, the New York Times, uh, on November 30th, 2021. Uh, this article is entitled, The Nation's First Supervised Drug Injection Sites Opened in New York. During the first official day in operation, train staff reversed two overdoses. So... Uh, In an attempt to curb a surge in overdose deaths caused by increasingly potent street drugs, New York City authorized two supervised injection sites in Manhattan that began operating on Tuesday. This would be last Tuesday or a couple Tuesdays ago. Trained staff at two sites in the neighborhoods of East Harlem and Washington Heights provided clean needles, administered naloxone to reverse overdoses, and provided users with options for addiction treatment. Users brought their own drugs to the site. So you can't buy them there. They're not. Sell, they don't have they're a vending sell, machine. No, there are no drugs for sale. Uh, New York, the country's most populous city. Is that true? I thought L.A., but uh, maybe it became the first U.S. city to open officially authorized injection sites, facilities that opponents view as magnets for drug abuse, but proponents praise as providing a less punitive and more effective. <laughs> it's a lot of alliteration <laughs> it there. It is and more effective approach to addressing addiction. Um, interesting, huh? It so is very interesting. Uh, it's a big deal. Um, I highlighted a couple of things that I wanted to take out of this article. Um, nationally, overdose deaths rose to more than 100,000 in the 12-month period that ended in April, according to the National Center for Health Statistics, up nearly 30% from the previous 12 months. More than 2,000 people died of a drug overdose in New York City in 2020 the highest total since the city began keeping track of overdose deaths in 2000. During the first three months of 2021, there were close to 600 overdose deaths, according 
to preliminary data. New York also saw an increase in overdose deaths related to fentanyl and other synthetic drugs. The reason I read that is to, you know, to really describe how bad this is. Yeah. How people are dropping dead. I mean, if this isn't a, an emergency, I don't know what is. Yeah, it's definitely an emergency. Uh, unfortunately, the federal government has yet to um, acknowledge the level of uh, the emergency, despite the fact that you know nationwide it was 100,000 people that died last year. Uh, apparently, there's a federal law often referred to as the crack house statute, which makes it oh. illegal to operate, own, or rent a location for the purpose of using illegal substances. So the, the DOJ, under the Trump administration, sued in 2019 to stop a supervised ejection facility in Philadelphia from opening. Um, I credit Bill de Blasio. I mean, I don't have a lot of great things to one, say one about him. One of the him. few things that he... Yeah. You know. But... Um, it. And actually, they reversed two ODs on the first day, but I think uh, as of today, it's something like almost six or ten, which are people who would be dead were it not for this uh, this facility, right? I mean, so how can you... How can the, we let them die? The horrible thing is, you know, this is the New York Times, right? Its readership tends to drift more to the left than the average yeah. paper, right? Mm -hmm. So there is a comment section attached to this article. Oh, no. I don't know if you did, went in there to take a look. It. it was very depressing because I would say 80% of the people were like, how could we allow people to just do drugs? You know, isn't it illegal? You know, and, and it was really disheartening because the stigma... You know, the, the lack of understanding that people have about what addiction is and yeah. how you treat it and, and what harm reduction is, is a tragedy. And, and it shows how far you have to go to get people to understand that stigmatizing people with addiction is just the wrong way to go about addressing the problem. Meanwhile, there are ten, probably 10 people alive today that wouldn't be, have been alive had these places not been there. Yeah, um, and and actually in the article he does list some dissenting opinions that, um, you know, people, it's the NIMBY thing, not in my backyard. Well, true, right? they didn't put these in Central Park, which would have been a nice, you know, central location for right. people. You know, they, they do put them in East Harlem and in, where, where was it, in Brooklyn, one of the, uh, uh, Washington Heights, not in Brooklyn, sorry, in Manhattan, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's, look, and what Bill de Blasio said, um, uh, I thought was worth reading. And uh, he said in a statement uh, that the decision will show other cities, and this is important, that, quote, after decades of failure, a smarter approach is possible. Mm -hmm. The mayor also sent a letter to the providers promising not to take enforcement action against their operations. Four of the city's five district attorneys, including the Ex Staten Island... Excluding the Staten Island. Ex did I say including? Yeah. Excluding the only Staten Island district attorney or only, Michael McMahon uh, supports supervised well, drug Stat sites. Staten Island is very uh, red, very Republican, very conservative. So, but what uh, does being Republican have to do with saving people's lives? I mean, I, I, mean, I would argue it has nothing to um, do with it, but you know, there is certain tribalism that goes along with politics, and, and I guess um, you know, needle exchanges and drug injection sites are not something the, the, uh, that side of the aisle is interested in embracing. What's interesting, though, is that Bill de Blasio is going to be in office for another couple of weeks, uh, and the new incoming mayor, Eric Adams, um, his, his statement on Twitter, I'm not exactly sure how to read it, because he said 
Each overdose death is a tragedy, and we can do more to prevent them. That's why I'm going to establish more overdose prevention centers that include wraparound services like counseling, healthcare, and supportive housing. Our neighbors' lives depend on it. What he did not say is he was going to increase the number of safe injection sites in the city. Eric Adams was a former police officer uh, before he became mayor. Um, so I don't know, maybe there's some well, residual, mean, yeah. um, you know, but, but what, he, what I do like is that, you know, the multidisciplinary approach to getting someone off narcotics, yeah. if, you, if you are including uh, counseling, healthcare, and supportive housing along with the safe injection site, then you're, what you're doing is you're not just giving a, a, somebody a place to mm. use drugs, you're getting a place... Uh, it's 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 like an entree into engage, getting them to engage yeah. with the system and to take advantage of the help yep. that's, that's out there it's and maybe point. hopefully lead them at, uh, away from uh, the use of the narcotics in the first place. Yeah, right? and, and that's what the author Tracy Helton talks about in her book, uh, The Big Fix, and and she's an, an activist for safe injection sites. And the point she makes was that this is a point of contact where you can reach somebody and perhaps not only save their lives. But um, have an opportunity for that person to turn their life around and, and use the tools available. Um, one of the other problems is that there, as you talked about, there's a federal law that kind of goes against you know the state and the city uh, that they have to contend with. But the Biden administration has embraced harm reduction methods, but hasn't explicitly endorsed the supervised injection sites. Uh, the city has had productive conversations with federal and state health officials and said he believed the facilities would be allowed to operate because of a shared sense of urgency about addressing the overdose crisis. So it sounds like we're getting some tacit uh, cooperation, you know, where Bill de Blasio, Mayor Bill de Blasio says, we won't enforce, you know, on your uh, areas, and that's important. Yeah, well. But we got to have everybody on board, I feel like. Um, the feds, you know, don't forget, they, they still run the DEA, and they still take an awful lot of money uh, you know, distribute an awful lot of money to, to police departments, and there's a there's a whole political dimension to this that you know, yeah, is beyond maybe the beyond this discussion for today. Since I'm getting tired. Okay, well, um, <laughs> that's recovering the news. Yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> that's the question one. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> All right. Motherfucker. Motherfucker. Um. And that brings us to Week and Weird. China's lunar rover to investigate, quote, mystery hut spotted <laughs> on the far side of the moon by the great Tim Banal. The far side of the moon? Yep. China's U-2-2 lunar rover is en route to investigate a curious cube-like anomaly that has been dubbed the mystery hut spotted on the far side of the moon. Word of the weird observation reportedly came about by way of the China National Space Administration's uh, Our Space website. That doesn't make sense. What? On Friday. This was on their website. The blog recounted how scientists were admiring the horizon as seen by the rover when suddenly an obtrusive cube on the northern skyline attracted their attention as it, quote, pierced through the winding of the skyline. What? Like a mysterious hut that appeared out of thin air. The report went on to note that there was a sizable impact crater near the object and then fantastically wondered if the oddity is a, quote, a home built by aliens after crash landing. <laughs> 
<laughs> or it could be a pioneer spacecraft of the predecessors to explore the moon. Uh, in other words, an ancient civilization yes. that you know had space travel before they were wiped right. out and, uh, or and all of that. it could be an oddly shaped rock. But here's, there's a less imaginative explanation put forward by scientists. Oh. Boo. <laughs> is that the anomaly is merely a boulder that came ah. to rest upon the surface of the moon by whatever created the crater next to it. Be that as it may, the team behind the rover are understandably intrigued by the peculiar observation and, in an admirable display of scientific inquiry, have now directed the craft to head towards the mystery hut. So wait, so the Chinese have a rover on the moon right now? Yep. And they're driving it towards the mysterious rock? It's a hut. Okay. It's clearly Uh something built by... When are we going to hear... I want to know what's inside. When are we going to hear what it is? When's that going to happen? I don't know. I'm mm. going to have to stay tuned. Stay tuned. Look up <laughs> Tim Banal. He's uh, writes for Coast to Coast AM. Yes, he does. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing about what's in the Mystery Hut. It's probably the Moon Yoda or something. <laughs> Waiting for a Jedi to appear to train. Could and, be. Uh, could be. And there you go. And that's Weak and Weird. Oh. I know. You're not feeling good. I'm not. I, mean, I had my shot yesterday, so and I'm, <sighs> and I'm shot. Well, that about does it for today. I know I had a great time. Did you? Yeah, it was well, good. Thank you so much for listening. I got a, I got a rubber duck out of the whole deal. <laughs> rubber duck, you're the one. Visit us at middleagesrecovery.com. Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Instagram, Spotify, YouTube, and Twitter. So tweet us a twat, you twit. Support your favorite show. Drop a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Join the private group. Buy a t-shirt, please. Or simply write and say hello. We love meeting new monsters and chopping it up on the Facebook group. And finally, the best way to... Help the show is to share it with a friend. If you get something out of our little show, please share the love and help grow the RMA movement. And as we say, non proficiat perfectum. Progress, not perfection. See you next time. Be good.